From Gimla Media, this is Without Fail. I'm your host, Alex Bloomberg. This is the show where I talk with entrepreneurs, artists, athletes, visionaries of all kinds about their successes and their failures and what they learned from both. When my co-founder Matt and I started Gimlet four years ago, I was coming into it in a way that I think happens with a lot of founders. I was a product person. I made the product that this company was going to be selling. I made podcasts. For most of my life, up until becoming the CEO of Gimlet, I had been a nonprofit journalist working in public radio. And early on, that was fine. That was actually good for us because I knew how to make the thing that we were making, and I knew how to make it pretty well. It felt like the next phase of my career. But one of the weird things about going from the maker to the person running the company is that the skills that got you there don't necessarily seem like they apply anymore. As the company grew and we hired more people and we had investors come on, I noticed that I was having this feeling that I hadn't had for a long time. A feeling like, I don't know how to do this job. And you know, it wasn't just the thing I was feeling. It was something that everybody else was noticing too. Matt and I just had 360s done about us. And this is the thing where you hire a company and they go and they talk to lots and lots of people all around you. They talk to the people that work for you, the people on the board, they talk to your friends, your family. They ask them all these questions about like, when you're at your best, when you're at your worst, what are the things that you need to work on? Just imagine the most naked, most unflattering photograph of yourself that you ever could. That's what a 360 is. Every single blemish, every single fault is highlighted in bold relief. And this one was no different. There's a bunch of nice things, but there's a lot of things that I'm not doing very well. Quoting from my 360, communication, organization, prioritization, blind optimism, and a biggie. Taking my seat as CEO. Being comfortable being the person who is making lots and lots of decisions. And they have all these quotes and like, they're, they're like asking examples of sort of like, you know, where did you see Alex most not taking a seat as CEO? And I mean, man, there's like pages. <laughs> there's literally pages. I'm scrolling through pages. <laughs> of like all these examples of where I'm like, not being decisive enough, where I'm not being clear enough in my communication, where I'm not actually sort of saying what the people who work for me need to hear from me, where I'm not being a leader. I know a lot of CEOs must go through this, especially CEOs who started like I did, almost accidentally. Like, they were just good at this one thing, and then that thing took off, and now they're the head of a company that does that thing. And that is why I'm very excited about the conversation I'm about to share with you today, a conversation with Sophia Amoruso. Three years ago, Sophia Amoruso was on the cover of Forbes as one of America's richest self-made women. She'd started a company called Nasty Gal when she was just 22 years old, and she'd grown it into an online woman's fashion brand that was valued at $350 million. She wrote a best-selling autobiography, Girl Boss. She gave speeches to sold-out auditoriums. Netflix made a show based on her book. But then, in November of 2016, it all fell apart, very publicly and very spectacularly. I wanted to talk to Sophia because she, like me, was a first-time founder who'd never really imagined herself as an entrepreneur. And then, all of a sudden, there she was, and she had to learn everything on the job. I had a very candid and very illuminating conversation with Sophia 
about what happened during the 10 years that she found herself at the head of this company and what she learned from everything that went down. And I should say before we begin, this episode has some strong language. You might not want to listen with kids around. Sophia and I started our conversation at the beginning, before she was on the cover of Forbes or a best-selling author, back when she was a 22-year-old college dropout who'd managed to land a job with health insurance as a security guard at a local art school. My title was campus safety host. My job was to sign in people who didn't have a student ID. Mm-hmm. And for those people looking for admissions, to tell them it was on the second floor. Um, and to sit behind a computer, I guess. I mean, I wasn't supposed to be on the internet, but there's like a secret way to hack into it. If you just pushed the mouse like a thousand times, like the computer would go nuts and you could get on. <laughs> it was like, it would like bust through the firewall and... Um, Spent a lot of time on MySpace. This was 2006. And on MySpace, Sophia kept getting friend requests from eBay stores. People who'd set up shops on eBay selling vintage clothing. Mama Stone Vintage wants to be your friend. Indie Cult Vintage wants to be your friend. Sophia would follow the links on these friend requests and see how occasionally huge bidding wars would break out over some item. And the seller of these stores could end up making a lot of money. Sophia thought, I have a good sense of style. I love to shop at vintage stores. I can start my own store on eBay. So she did. She decided to call that store Nasty Gal. I never for a moment thought I was starting a company. I was just like, oh, let me see if I can like not leave the house and sell some stuff and make a few bucks. And so, yeah, I started with some stuff that I owned. I went to a thrift store, bought some stuff that I thought might be cool, you know, styled it on like a random friend, took some you know, probably shitty photos and put it up on eBay to see what would happen. And some stuff sold and some stuff didn't. And so Mm -hmm. I just learned and tweaked and said, okay, well, they want more of this. Well, why would I waste my time on that? And then, you know, spent time really trolling my competitors and seeing what was working for them and putting my own spin on it, but going and sourcing that vintage. Ooh, a wool cape with a bow tie. Or, you know, a 60s baby doll mini dress with like a ruffled bib or whatever the fuck the language was that was, you know, trendy at the time. What was what was the first thing when in the early days, what was the first thing that you remember that did pretty well? Uh there was a dress. It was a wool Lily Ann dress. And I didn't know what Lily Ann was, but it was like a nice 1960s shift dress, finely knit, like heavy wool. And it was sleeved. And then you noticed that, like, the bidding was going, well, there was a lot of interest in it? Yeah, the the auction price just rose and rose. And eBay is so interesting because, you know, as a seller, you're sitting there and you're like, oh, my God, it notifies you when there's another bid. And you're like, oh, my God, it's $25 higher. Oh, my God, it's 50 Like, people are duking it out. Uh-huh. And so just watching people fight over it. And then I remember... I was drinking, I don't know, like Takati, canned Takati in L.A. with some goofball friends of mine. And I had like, I think, a Blackberry Pearl at the time, which was like, oh, my God, I can look at the Internet on my phone. <laughs> and my auctions closed and I made like 2500 bucks in a week. And I was like, what? I just, it just like felt like I was like rich. <laughs> <laughs> Describe that feeling. I guess it was like I'm on to something. Everything else I did ever was just so intolerable. Like every job I had... Every class I took, I was like, I can't apply this right now. Why am I here? I was really impatient. And I had something where each day I learned something new. Each day I could see the proof that I was, you know, 
when I when I worked harder at something or I thought more about something or what I had just done, the success or failure of that had, you know, informed like a better choice and how every day it was it was, you know, building on itself. It was it's just like so gratifying. It's it's like no other feeling. What is your what is your identity at this point? I don't know if I had much of an identity at this point. Like I was behind Nasty Gal and Nasty Gal was cool and was gaining traction. Nobody like knew who I was and I didn't care. Like I, I it was like all I did. It was just all right. I did for for years. What at what point in these early days did you realize like things are going well here? I'm 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 on to something. I eventually saved a million dollars in cash in a bank account. It was all cash. Like I didn't have a credit card. I didn't have debt. I have a screenshot of the company's account and it has like $995,000 and um I was at the top of the pack in the vintage category. People were bidding them up to the highest of the highest. I could buy something for 20 bucks and sell it for 400. My average auction closing price was $150 and I usually spent no more than like $15, $20 on something and so it was just like it was like free cash. It was literally alchemizing something through it was just like uh, perceived value. It was like I'm literally taking something off a floor putting it on a person, styling it into something modern, and it becomes valuable. What happens next? You Eventually, you move off of eBay, though. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was a place where I was, like, sending a lot of traffic from MySpace where I was marketing things. And then at the bottom of my listing, there was, like, other items from other sellers. And I was like, why am I giving this away? Why am I sending all this traffic to other sellers, to eBay? Why don't I just, like, send it to myself since I am—I have the audience on MySpace. I have all the friends on MySpace. I'm the one who's built this audience. They should just be coming to me. So you build your site. What was your state of mind? Directing your traffic to someplace completely new is a really big risk, but I didn't realize that I had editors shopping with me, like L.A. fashion editors. Yeah. And at the time, Daily Candy was a thing, which was like a massive email list. Um, who at where, you know, the the editors, founders who at where were, were shopping. And so when they caught wind that I was about to launch something, they sent out like dedicated emails to their audiences about Nasty Gal launching a website before it ever happened. And there's just tons of tons and tons of interest. And um, and and that's I I kind of knew it would do well. I had no idea it would sell out so fast. Um, the website sold out, like, oh, I launched it and it sold out overnight. And I was like, all right, all right. Kelly Ripa's stylist was calling and was like, do you have another one of that vintage jacket and an extra small? And I'm like, no, it's no, it's one of a kind. But cool, Kelly Ripa's stylist. LA seemed like, oh my God, LA. Right. What? A cel- someone who knows a celebrity? Kelly Ripa's stylist. That's um, a real, a lot of people see Kelly Ripa. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that basically sort of launched you into the next phase. Like you've gone from essentially a business where you can do it by yourself. It's like you can own and operate it and you can outsource where you need. Um, but but like it's just you. Mm-hmm. How did you go from that to at a certain point you had how many employees? Mm-hmm. Around 300. How do we get from you to to 300? So long story short, I just kept doing that. I kept buying stuff that people liked and stopped selling the things that people didn't like and spent less money than I made. 
and kept reinvesting in the business. And so, I mean, my first year on eBay, I think I did $75,000, which was like, I mean, again, I wasn't wasn't making that as a salary. It was the Mm -hmm. business's money. And then the second year was 250 grand. And the year after that, it was 1.1 million. Then it was six and a half million. Then it was 28 million. And it was really just like, there was so much demand. There was so little like e-commerce at the time. There was nothing for for this girl um, with any kind of personality. This is 2007, 2008. And I just, I hired a few more people to ship stuff. Then you hire a receiving person. Then you hire a dedicated customer care person. You break out all of the functions of the business and hire people who are not generalists, but specialists. And how how are you feeling about your, like, that's pretty, that's a pretty big upgrade from like, you know, (laughs) living, living in a closet in Sacramento. Uh, Totally. And pretty quickly. Totally. I had a balcony. I, it was like I furnished it with CB2, and it was like I had a parking space, and I had bought myself a Nissan Murano. I was living it up, right? Like I could eat as many burritos as I wanted. And I moved the company to LA in late 2010, and I rented a house with a backyard and a hot tub. And it was like a it was like a two-bedroom house, but it was like an actual house in Los Feliz, and I think I paid maybe $2,800 a month, which was wow. a lot. And I wasn't sure if I could afford it. And I felt like I would, like, grow into affording it. And I really do think that making commitments before you know how to keep them is how you manifest things. It's also, like, how you end up, like, fucking up. But it's like you won't step into that opportunity or being able sometimes to afford those things as irresponsible as it may seem without, like, actually committing to it. And so, so yeah, I was living in L.A. And um, it was around— it was at the $28 million mark in 2012 when investors, venture capitalists, started calling me. And I had no idea how my life would change when, when venture capitalists came, came in to, to, to play. After the break, how her life did change when venture capitalists came into play. That's coming up after these words from our sponsors. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome back to Without Fail. We're going to pick up the conversation with Sophia Amoruso where we left off. In 2012, Sophia's company, Nasty Gal, was doing really well. It had over $28 million in revenue, a loyal customer base. It looked like she was just going to keep growing. That all changed when investors started showing an interest, calling Sophia, wanting to talk about investing in her company. And what were you saying about this? Were you intrigued? Were you like, I don't know? What, what were you thinking when that, around the first call? Well, I had a profitable business, and they, like, wanted in. They were like, how did this freak bootstrapped a business to $30 million profitably, you know, we want in. I didn't need to raise venture capital. And then I met Danny Reimer at Index Ventures, who's, I think, one of the founders. And he called me and he said, I get it. You have a community. And that was when I said, okay, this guy gets it. Uh, your life sounds pretty good. What was, why did you, why did you want to take investment? You're, you're running, you're making $28 million. It's, you've, you're making profits. How much money did you have in the bank? 
maybe like a million bucks or something. I mean, me personally, I don't know. I mean, I mean, maybe like fifteen grand or you know, uh, I had a salary and right. I could pay my. Oh, rent. but so you're even though even though the revenue from the business was in the twenty eight million dollars, you're still not. It's not like you were you personally were bringing home a ton of money. I was not a millionaire. No, right, right. Nothing right. I could. Nothing memorable before investors came in. Got it. So was that partly what it was? Like this was oh, this can be a way for me to get paid back for a lot of this hard work that I've put into building this brand to this point? For me, it was like uh, these guys valued the company at $350 million post money, which meant I sold like, I don't know what, 15% of my company. Uh And I had two seats on the board and Danny had one and that was that. And the company had, you know, they had put $40 million in and I sold a little bit of secondary, which means like I personally took a little money off the table. The majority of that investment went into the business. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was like an amazing cushion to have and be like, wow, like I just busted my ass for six years. And now there's like something to show show for it because I never took a dollar out of the business. And that that was that was the life-changing moment. Like I became a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> right. When you're like 28 or 27 or how, however old I was. I mean, that's weird. It's really weird. What was weird about it? I don't know. Just being able to afford stuff and then like not knowing. Like as soon as that happened, I could like afford things and like everything was expensive. So I didn't know how expensive really expensive was. I have no gauge for like whether I'm just being duped or if like that's how much things actually cost. Right. I paid off right. my mom's mortgage. Yeah, I did that. That was the first thing I did. Oh, that's got to feel good. Yeah, it felt really good. I bought a Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> Which also has to feel good. The Porsche felt good. What felt better? The Porsche felt... The Nissan. No, paying off your mom's mortgage or buying the Porsche? I mean, paying off my mom's mortgage, but as far as the Porsche goes, the fucking Nissan was like, you will ne- it's, you won't ever experience what it's like to like put down 10 grand for a car. I mean, I saved and saved and saved to put down 10 grand on a used car and have like a low payment. Like that was, I'll never experience that again. (laughs) That felt better than the Porsche. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So you take on investor money and then what happens? Oh my God. I hired C-level people. We like licked our finger, put it in the air and we're like 28 million. Well, next year we'll do 128 million. Just round it up by a hundred million dollars. And I trusted a lot of people. I was very naive. And this is not to like not take responsibility for the trajectory that Nasty Yell went on at that point. But we wanted to grow by a hundred million dollars. And so we hired a hundred people in a year and it became full on the Tower of Babel. And we did grow. You know, we didn't get to $100 million in a year. I think we got to 60. And then Uh, we got to 80. And then we got to 100 and over 100. But but it it didn't happen happen in in one year. It didn't happen in a year. Right. Talk about that. Because I feel like that's a thing that we've also struggled with sometimes is to try to figure out, like, you have to sort of forecast what you're going to grow. You have investors who are sort of expecting growth. Like our investors are very, like I've heard horror stories about like, where's my growth, you know? And like people are pounding the Mm -hmm. table and it's definitely not like that with us. But like you understand that when you take on investment, like you're not going to be, you know, a a simple business anymore. You're going to be a growing business. Like that's the deal. You work for the board. Yeah. We pulled a number out of the sky and we had no history to base it on. It was just like, uh, 
1.16.528, like, okay, I guess we'll quadruple that number. And I don't know. But we didn't have real, like, merchandising systems to base, like, forecasts off of. It was pretty basic kind of back end of the business that we had at that point. And mm-hmm. it was very much just, like, pulled out of the sky. Um, going from a mom-and-pop shop, really, at that scale is and, and and converting that kind of a business that was venture growth without venture capital and the kind of infrastructure and reporting and expectations and way of working that comes with investors and real executives and all these things that just all happen so quickly, the learning curve became really, really high for me. And I, I had to trust the people around me and the people that I hired who had experience, more experience than in their careers than I had been alive. Yeah. Um, and 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 it, and it grew and it kept growing. Um, and and it wasn't until several, several years later where it started to kind of, it started to level out a little bit, which was... Um, which was probably in late 2014. Yeah. You you wrote in your book, I didn't plan to start a business, I was 22, and then you said, you, you say I was looking for a way to pay my rent and buy my Starbucks chai, and then you say, quote, had someone shown me the future of where Nasty Gal would be in 2014, I would have gasped in revulsion. Oh, wow. I don't remember <laughs> writing that. That's, um, so, I hope my team didn't read that. Well, I think, well, I th- yeah. I thought business people were like suits and I thought like the word CEO was just like, I thought capitalism was like putrid. I wasn't in it for the money. The money came with like curiosity and going down the rabbit hole. The money was nice once it came. I didn't have no idea what kind of freedom or lifestyle or whatever existed. And now I'm probably just a chump. But, um, but uh, I mean, yeah, I thought, I thought people in positions of power were like all shitty people. And I, I don't, I didn't consider myself a shitty person. I don't consider myself a shitty person. So you take the investment, you, you project, you know, $100 million in new revenue. That doesn't come, but you're growing, growing more slowly than the, than the investors would like. But then at a certain point, you plateau. You eventually have to lay people off. There's a point where you decide to step down as a CEO. Mm-hmm. Talk about that decision. What, what, what led to it? So, as a founder, your title it's CEO, just cause because <laughs> you I'm founded the that. company. It's <laughs> like default CEO, and it's like, why am I qualified to be CEO? I'm I'm a company of one. I'm the CEO and the president and the se- secretary or whatever. Um, and then it grows and it grows and it grows, and people are looking at you and they're like, "You're the CEO. You must know." And you're like, "I don't know anything. How did this happen?" I need to hire people who know, but I'm still, like, the buck stops with me, but I don't know how to hold these people accountable. I I don't think I ever did. And my job eventually became a lot of, like, bureaucracy, a lot of just, like, stuff that I wasn't cut out to do. And I'm really, like, a marketing person. I'm a brand person. I'm good at curating the entire business and connecting with the customer and intuiting what she wants and loves. But doing that job was like, I was in meetings all day and I was so far from the creative part of the business, so far, um, that it was just like, it was a bummer and um, it wasn't fun and jobs are never fun and didn't get more fun once I 
stepped up into the non-CEO role, um, which was my decision. I didn't, I controlled the board. You know, Danny was like, don't do it. My investor board member was like, don't, don't. And I was like, I want to. So I did it. And uh, what did that mean? I was still the boss. I still own most of the company. I still controlled the board, but I hired someone to whom the other C-level executives reported to. The learning curve for the business was just much steeper than the time I had to catch up. Um, And I realized that. And uh, I put Sherry Watterson, who was the chief product officer at our chief merchandising officer at Nasty Gown. Prior to that, had been the chief product officer at Lululemon and really, really built um, the merchandising kind of design organization of of that business. And it was a very, it was a community-oriented business. And I saw the parallels between that and Nasty Gal because Nasty Gal was a feeling. Nasty Gal was like, she was like, I'm a Nasty Gal. She was the most likely candidate for CEO. I don't know how you vet a CEO. I thought it did a good job. And she was a lovely person. Um, it was a really challenging role to step into at the time. Like we had gone through layoffs. Like I wrote this book, Girl Boss, and I put myself on the cover in 2014. And I was like, yeah, I did it. And and then like by the end of that year, like we had started laying people off and it was just like, oh my God, what is this? I, I mean, so much of what you're saying is just like resonating with like what I've been thinking about and going through and trying to, fi- and trying to figure out. One of which is just sort of like this idea that like what got you into the position in the first place of of CEO of this growing company is not the thing that you need to actually run the growing company. Like, it's hard to figure out, like, am I the right person for this job? Yeah, I ask myself that every day. But I would be terrified also to, like, step aside because it does feel like my, my baby and I feel like I'm definitely not ready to do that. Because I wor- I'm just worried about, like, I guess relinquishing control or something. I think that's a good thing. I think I should have felt that way. Oh, I really? think I was tired. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I would like to have stayed CEO. Would, our, would the fate of Nasty Gal been any different had I stayed CEO? I don't know. Ultimately, like, I think our fate was sealed the day we were valued at $350 million because it just cock-blocked the ability for anybody to come in and be like, you're worth, you're making $100 million? Cool, you're worth 200 Because right. our existing investors would have been like, uh, no, I'm not going to take that a big, you know, hair, haircut on my, you know, on, on my valuation or on what my stock is worth, which is what happens right. uh, when someone comes in a, a, a down round, as they call it. Right. And that just like, that was just, it just, we couldn't, we couldn't raise after that. It was, it was so hard. I would have like great buy-in from like a private equity guy, someone with like deep peril experience who could come in and like really move the needle with us. And, um, and then he'd be like, cool, I want to talk to you, um, so-and-so. I guess I don't need to name names. Uh, this person who's been involved for a long time. And that person would say, if you don't, if you can't value the company where we valued it, don't bother showing up. And then these people just disappear. Like, I never Oof. knew these conversations were happening. And then a year later, I'd be like, hey, like, what happened? Like, we were, you know, I'm, I, I'm good at, like, I mean, I'm just good at, relationships like I think I'm right you know and getting people excited about what we're doing and like really getting people to see the brand and what the potential was and it was it was a great brand you know um 
And then these people just disappear. And later on, I heard from more than one of them, like, yeah, I talked to so-and-so and and they said, like, not to bother showing up unless, you know. And then it just starved us out, just starved us out and starved us out of cash. And then eventually Nasty nasty Gal had to file for bankruptcy. Can can you talk about the bankruptcy filing? Where where were you? How, How did that come about? So the six months preceding that were pretty wild. I wound up on the cover of Forbes magazine. Um, and then my husband of a year left me a month later. And then I was in Australia promoting a book called Nasty Galaxy, which was like, oh, God, I did this thing called Girl Boss. This book, I thought it would sell clothes. It didn't sell clothes. I guess I'll do a book that's like marketing Nasty Gal. So I was in Australia promoting that. And, you know, you don't go bankrupt overnight. Like it was two years of layoffs and, you know, budgets and, you know, just moving things around and fundraising and deals, just deal after deal, Hail Mary after Hail Mary kind of slipping Mm -hmm. between my fingers. And it just, it just became... Like, kind of like total hell. And um, I I could have been, I could have been more involved. I could have been more engaged. It was just so far beyond my ability to, like, course correct at that point. So it was in Australia. It was the day Trump became, was elected, um, that we f- had that final call and voted, you know, because it's like you're, you're actually, like, you have a fiduciary ju- duty to file you know, it, really at the point of no return. And, you know, there was 24 hours, 24 hours. We're going to get this through. This is going to happen. The fundraising is going to happen. These guys are going to buy us this, this, this. Oh, what's the chance of this? You know, I would go to people and say, what's the chance of this happening? And when anyone responds 100% and there's not a paper sign, they're a fucking idiot. I mean, listen, I made a ton of mistakes. Like, did, I don't know if I hired the right people. I probably made some decisions too quickly and some too slowly. Like, I was naive and young and, again, no excuse. There's tons of founders who were like 26 who were doing fine, you know. After the break, how those mistakes added up and left Sophia on a stage in front of thousands announcing that Nasty Gal was out of business. That's after these words from our sponsors. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Sophia Amoruso. So, okay, so so you tried all these things and then... On the day of Trump's election, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you probably were not a supporter of Donald Trump. No. Mm-mm. And so on the day that he gets elected, you have to have the bankruptcy. Yeah, I'm on a call with the board where we voted to send the company into into Chapter 11, literally in a green room before I walk on a stage in front of like a thousand women. Uh, and the press broke at the same time. Uh, and then I walked on stage and not everyone, I don't think anyone in the room had seen the press, but it's like, what, what are you going to do? Not talk about it. It's like on the internet all of a sudden. And, and I just, I mean, it was like, you go bankrupt and five minutes later, you're standing in front of a thousand people. Like, what the fuck is my like biblical, like weird ass, like ride? What is this? It's so, it's like, I forget this stuff because I go about my day and I'm like, should I have steamed vegetables for lunch? And then I say this stuff and I'm like, what the fuck? So that happened. And <laughs> what I, were they I, there I cried. To hear you talk about <laughs> my book and girl boss and being a girl boss and nasty galaxy and nasty gal. And they love the clothes and the clothes sold in Australia and like whatever. And there I am, like, 
I'm like crying on stage in front of these people. What did you What did you say? I don't remember, but I there was a sense of relief. I, you know, I'm not supposed to say that, but it was such a grueling last few years. So many people's lives were affected by it. Um, if I could have changed the course of that, I would have. It was just like, it was 10 years. You know, I put in 10 years, 22 to 32. I mean, it's not my whole youth, but I like to say that. <laughs> and so it was like, it was a little cathartic, but it was it was still really, really sad. Um, but it's not yeah. like, it wasn't a surprise. Like, this doesn't happen overnight. Right, right. I know it's so that's so weird that feeling of like just like oh my god like all this responsibility and like trying to make everything work and having it sometimes work and sometimes not and then that mix of just sort of like I don't know if, if I didn't <laughs> have to worry to about all this it. you know you're not supposed to say <laughs> yeah. it what did I get yeah. myself into how did this happen <laughs> I want I just want to go home yeah 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 but then also like this is the thing I care about mm-hmm. so. After the bankruptcy, you started a new company, Girl Boss. What are you doing differently now? What are the lessons that you take away from Nasty Gal that inform Girl Boss? I mean, everything. I didn't know shit at 22. And, you know, I'm 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 thinking a lot about culture. And it's challenging. Like the most the most unpredictable thing about a business is humans. And so I'm I think a lot about that. And I think a lot about leading by example. I don't do dinner meetings. I don't go to the chateau for the magazine party so I can like stay relevant. Like the glamour is so lost on me because I was such a hoe. Um, is that, that was something you were doing back in the, in the I nasty did, I did. I mean, like I wanted to do all of it because I didn't, I had no access. Yeah. You know, I didn't know what this stuff was. I thought it was really cool. And now it's like, I built my Rolodex drinking a lot of wine and not being at home and eating a lot of oysters and clinking champagne glasses all the way to fucking bankruptcy. And I don't care about that stuff anymore. I've said yes. I'm now in like a say no period for like, you know, yes, 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 serendipity, yes. And I'm like, no intention, no focus, no. Now the way I think about like I knew the company was struggling when I was like, yeah, put me on the cover of Forbes magazine. I'm one of America's richest self-made women. And like my stock in the company was still eh, worth a lot, but it's like it's all like monopoly money, whatever. It sounds like what you're saying is like you're you're focusing very much more on essentials and like less on sort of like um, the other stuff the out, going out. And the other is you said you, you're focusing a lot on culture. What were signs? What, what do you think about when you think back of like, oh, that was a sign of culture that was that was not working, that that I definitely don't want here in this new company? I mean, I had bosses sleeping with people who reported to the person under them. I had a guy embezzle $500,000 from us. I had people with like a code word for our CEO that was like really offensive that they were using to their reports. There was a lot of like cattiness and, you know, and silos and fiefdoms or whatever the fuck all the words are for those things. Um, and what, what was missing, which I'm trying to do now is creating objective tools for people to understand what it is, not what I want. Like, oh, Sophia wouldn't like that. Like, I don't want that to be a conversation in a room ever, whether I'm in it, even worse when I'm not in the room. This isn't about whether Sophia likes it or not. Here's the brand. 
look, does this fit with that objective guide? This is what we're all signing up for. It's this thing that's not me. And I never figured out how to scale me. And then it became like a haves and have-nots of culture and like, ooh, this person's cooler than the other person. Well, you know, we should go with their ideas right. if you wouldn't like that. Well, <laughs> and, you reach um, a point. I mean, this is something that is so, this also just resonates so deeply because you can get to a place where like you can just go by on the force of your personality at a certain size and then you get to a certain size and you're like oh right i become a that becomes a an impediment because like as you said like then people are judging like by how close they are to you and like getting access to you becomes the goal rather than sort of like doing what's best for the company based on the mission it's like such a classic thing to struggle with and it's so hard to get right and it's something that we struggle with as well yeah, how do you scale yourself? I mean, it's like if everybody starting with you and the people under you don't sign up for all the things that you talk about, it'll never find its way into the greater company and it's just a bunch of lip service and people don't people like lose respect so quickly. You have to you do have to be a role model and being a role model is a little bit of a buzzkill. Yeah, I mean who you talk to, who you spend the most time with is an indication of who's most important in the company. Everyone is watching. Everyone is watching every expression, every micro expression, and they don't care how self-deprecating you are. You better know. Yeah. And even when there are things happening deep under the hood and people are, you know, maybe there's things, behaviors that are not aligned with your culture and you don't know about it and you sometimes won't know about it ever or for six months, everyone is looking at you thinking, how is he letting that happen. Yes. Nothing is personal. It's about getting the work done, doing the best work possible, celebrating the work, and yeah, having some fun along the way. But um, your loyalties and and everyone on your team's loyalties have to be the greater business. Yeah, yeah. It's about taking yourself seriously as the boss. Yeah, and it's hard because it's just like, what? How did I get here? Who let me in the back door? <laughs> right. <laughs> what? Like you've got to fight your own imposter syndrome, but not publicly. Yeah, I mean... There's something to be said for having adversity up front in a business because you have to think about the things that like will allow you to scale more beautifully. When something just explodes and you don't haven't looked at those things, like when the tide recedes, there's so much junky shit hiding out under the water that by the time you discover it, it's too late to clean up. So like I want real substance in my life. Like Again, the tide has lowered, and actually there's something really cool under it this time. Coming up on the next episode of Without Fail, longtime Hollywood studio executive Nina Jacobson has made quite a few hits in her life. The Sixth Sense, Remember the Titans, Pirates of the Caribbean, and most recently, Crazy Rich Asians. But she's also had her share of flops, and she says you can tell the flops right after that very first screening. She remembers one in particular. Afterwards, people would come up and congratulate me on what a brave movie it was, at which point I knew that I was fucked because brave is code for stupid in Hollywood. Um, and I was like, oh, God. That's next on Without Fail. Without Fail is hosted by me and produced by Sarah Platt. It's edited by me, Nazneen Rafsanjani, and Devin Taylor. Peter Leonard mixed the episode. Our music is by Bobby Lord. If you enjoyed this show, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave us a review. It really helps. And tell your friends, for the love of God, tell your friends about it. If you like it, they'll like it too. And they'll like you more for telling them. We'll be back next episode. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>